hit December, and I, every year I think, okay, I'm doing good. December's going to be great. And then I start to go... <laughs> you know, it's, I feel like December for me is always a crawl to the finish line. Always. Um, there's always a, truthfully, there's always usually a, a bit of depression I usually battle with in December. I don't know how much that's weather related or how much of that's just my own rebellion against pushing all the fanfare of Christmas and holidays and all that. But, but um, you know, it's interesting that today we're going to talk about just um, the presence of God in our lives. And, and uh, I really realized that I can't fight through this. I can't fight uh, and there's nothing I have inside me. Uh, it's kind of like New Year's resolutions, you know. New Year's, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. I can't, you know, that kind of, you know, that kind of thing. And I feel like that with with December for me, especially these last couple of days. It's even started to even go tip down a little even more for me. And and so I just want us to, as we as we go into this time of looking in God's Word and not just praying for. God to lead us in this time because we desperately need him to. But God, just to really pray that God would, we would sense his presence in the midst of just the stuff of December. Remember we've talked about in the past that when we were talking about what church is, church, church doesn't, isn't, the, isn't the absence of conflict, it's the, pre, it's, it's the presence of Jesus within that conflict. And I feel it's the same thing with our lives. Being a, being a follower of Jesus isn't the absence of difficulty. Being a follower of Jesus is not the absence of depression or anxiety or tragedy or difficulty. It's all about the presence of Christ within that and how that changes our perspective and how that, how that really makes us think um, about our lives during that time. So we join me as we pray and just kind of to yourself too and with as we pray for our time in the God's word that we would just invite God's presence into our stuff. Father, we acknowledge that we are weak and we are in, in need. We are in need of so much. Yet, God, what we ultimately need is more understanding of your presence and how much you love us. And so, God, as we begin now to another opportunity to look into your word, we pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would help us to sense your presence, not, not as a warm, fuzzy feeling, but just in a sense of reminding us how in control you are, how much you love us, how much you are for us, how your ways are so different than our ways, your thoughts are different than our thoughts. God, I want to join my friends here in asking you to meet us, especially those of us that might be struggling, meet us in the midst of that, God. We're not asking you to take it away. First and foremost, we're asking, God, you, you just help us to sense your presence in it. Help us to sense your goodness in the midst of it all. And God, as we look in your word, God, I, I got nothing. It's all about what you have, Father. So I pray that your spirit would lead and guide this time as we look into your word, your living, your active word, that is one of the main ways that you meet us. This is how you meet us in your word. So may your spirit lead us and guide us in it. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. All right. 
Well, if you've been around the church for a while, you have probably heard of the term uh, Christian apologetics. You've probably heard, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to do the offering, didn't I? Lord, bless this offering. <laughs> Go. <laughs> Thank you, Elias. And you don't have to do sign language from back there. You can just say, yo, idiot, <laughs> you, forgot, you forgot something. <laughs> um, if you've been around, like I said, you've probably heard the term Christian apologetics before. Um, Christian apologetics, what, what it essentially is, is it's the science or the art of answering the question, basically, why, why would anyone or why should anyone be a Christian? Why? Technically, here's, I'm going to give you a technical term for the, you technical people out there. Technically, Christian apologetics is, and it's up on the screen there, it's the task of developing and sharing logical and reasoned arguments for the truth and rationality of Christianity and the falsehood and the irrationality of alternatives with the aim of strengthening the faith of believers and provoking non-believers to consider Christ. That's what what apologetics is. Basically, Christian apologetics is about rightly and appropriately defending the Christian faith. Okay, that's what it is. I know it's a big theological word out there, but that's basically what it means. It's doing it not in a, oh, I'm just going to pour facts at you, but it's really doing it in a right way and in an appropriate way of defending the Christian faith and what it means to be a follower, really means to be a follower of Jesus. Well, in our passage this morning, we're going to look at probably one of the most definitive examples of Christian apologetics in the entire Bible. Okay, this is this is gonna this is where it, this is gonna be a real thorough looking at it. And from this look of this from this look of Christian apologetics here, my hope is that we will come to better understand what it is that we actually need, really, to ultimately be able to uh, not only courageously but appropriately and rightly defend our faith. Remember, we're talking we're in the book of Acts here, so this is all about they're sharing their faith. The word of God is exploding. It's moving. It's great. A lot of things are going on. But what does it really mean? What does it really mean? What does it look like to defend our faith? Now, last week, remember, we looked at how the church, uh, early church addressed this issue that arose that really, remember, it had the possibility of really causing some, some major division within their church. And ultimately, it could have created a huge distraction for the advance of the gospel, Um, Certain widows, remember, certain widows were being discriminated against when it came to being cared for by the church. And we saw that, remember, the church chose seven men to help out with this and to help deal with this issue. And remember, one of the guys' names was Stephen. Okay, Stephen was one of the guys, and this morning's passage focuses solely on him, okay? And really his willingness and and his boldness to articulately defend the Christian faith. And that's what I want to look at today. We're going to look at how he actually does that. So look at verse uh, verse 8 of chapter 6 is where we are. The first verse we're going to look at is, it says this, 
And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So here we see that Stephen's ministry is actually goes beyond what he had been uh, commissioned to do. Remember, he had just been simply asked to, hey, there's a problem with the widows. Would you help be a part of the guys that help take care of this? Great. Stephen's one of those guys. But now we're seeing he was doing a whole lot more, Okay. He was effectively performing massive signs and wonders. He was probably healing people like crazy in Jesus' name. Basically, he was doing a lot of the things that the apostles were doing. Notice that what enables him to do this, though, was to perform these miracles, not his own power or not how good he was, but it was this enabling power of grace. And that's like, that's an interesting way to put it. He could have just said, uh, and Peter just, I mean, and Stephen was experiencing this incredible power from God. No, it talks about God's grace because grace is meaning that it was, it was this unmerited, it was, it was this undeserved gift from God that was given for the purpose of honoring and glorifying God. Stephen didn't do anything to deserve it, but God just decided, I want you, I'm going to grace you with this incredible power to do the, all these miraculous things. And that's what he was doing. And number one, if you're taking, if you want to follow along in the notes, it's, uh, it says, but because I re- really want us to remind us, by the way, that this same unmerited grace that Stephen experienced to do and say things for God that were really well beyond his abilities uh, is available to all believers today as well. I know we know that in our head. I think we've got to remember that this incredible power, this incredible dumping that God just loves, hey, you don't deserve it. Here, I'm going to use you in this way. That's available to all of us to do things that we never imagined doing. Like, well, you may not ever heal people. You never might have that gift or something like that. But God does want to do stuff through us that we never imagined he could do. And that's a good lesson that we see from here. Because remember that just prior to his ascension, Jesus told his disciples this in Acts 1. Remember, he says, but you will receive what? Power. Not just you will receive a good feeling. (laughs) Not just you will receive this. It's going to be great to be a part of this church thing. No, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So first and foremost, what we need to remember is that it's the Holy Spirit who empowers us to effectively defend our faith. It's not all about, so often I've even fallen in this trap of feeling like, okay, I need to brush up on how to, how to present the four spiritual laws, which is not a bad idea. Or I need to brush up, I need to figure out how, we need to be prepared. But so often we, I, I think, and my, I've fallen into this, I don't share my faith when, when an opportunity comes because I feel inadequate. I feel like I'll, 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 I might say the wrong thing or, oh my gosh, what do I do here? Instead of just realizing the fact that, you know what, I am, God is with me, which we're going to see in just a moment here. And it's the Holy Spirit's job to do this, not mine. It's the Holy Spirit's job to make this make sense. <laughs> Okay, it's the Holy Spirit's job to reveal to them their sin. It's not, it's not my job. My job is to be faithful in saying the things that I feel like I'm supposed to be saying. Okay, so that's what we really get from this. It's not about our skills or our training. All those things are really important. I would encourage you to know how to present your faith. And the first thing, the best way to do that is to be able to just tell your own story. Just so you know that. The best way to share the gospel 
is to share your own story of what Jesus has done for you and what Jesus means to you. No one can dispute that. Oh, no, that didn't happen to you. No, that's the best way, okay? Now, for many people, what was happening through Stephen would be, was seen as something amazing. You can imagine people were just like in awe of what was going on, and they were celebrating what he was doing. You couldn't imagine it. They were like, wow, this is so great. But as we're going to see here, for some, what it actually did was provoke severe, hostile, hostile hostility, okay? Severe, fierce hostility is what I meant to say. So we're going to look at that now. We're going to see in a chunk of scripture here what happens. Look at verse 9, this hostility that um, Stephen comes up against. Verse 9 says this, then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of Cyrenians and of Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then, he, then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses and said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. (laughs) And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Once again, sorry, fan. I always need my biggest fan. So we see that there was these certain members of the synagogue. We're not going to get into what all these different guys rep- represented in, in the synagogue, but they began to argue with and, ch- and to challenge Stephen. And really what was happening is they were likely challenging um, this, what the implications of all that he was saying about Jesus, you know, this long-awaited Messiah, all that he was saying and how they perceived that his teaching was impacting really all this law. Remember the law that they were professionals. They had it memorized. And it was having an impact on that. And most importantly, it was having an impact on how they saw the temple. Okay, that's where we're going to look a lot, a lot, at a lot at. The use of how they're supposed to use the temple back in the, that day. Because we see here, though, that they can't handle it. They can't handle his, his spirit-inspired wisdom. So what do they do? which a lot of people do a lot of times when they can't win and can't get the upper hand, they go to, let's, do, let's, let's work on, the, let's, get, let's bend the truth. Let's just go for bending the truth here. So they get these instigate peoples, including some uh, religious bigwigs, to bring charges against them that are really, of, if we got we to understand, these were a serious nature that they were bringing against Stephen here. Because to speak heretically or falsely against the most holy place in all of Judaism, the temple, and against its law, the law of Moses, really was as serious as a crime as you can get. Think about the most serious, heinous crime that we have today. This was about the biggie. This was about the biggest you would get back then. If you were to speak blasphemous or, or lie or sell un, tell untruths about what the temple represented and what the law of Moses represented. So they bring him, what they do, they decide to bring him uh, to this religious council for really a more formal examination. So just so we get an idea here, number two on your notes, essentially the main accusation that they're bringing against Stephen is actually a misrepresentation of Jesus's prediction about the temple. Okay, this is what they're doing here. 
Remember back in Mark's gospel at Jesus' own trial, Jesus is accused, remember, of saying that he would do what to the temple? That he would destroy the temple and then, it would, then what would happen? And then it would, it would be rebuilt again, okay? He said, and he even said, I'm going to destroy this temple and it's going to be rebuilt without hands. So he said something absolutely crazy to them. But they, so they thought he was literally speaking about the literal temple. When we know now, though, he was speaking about his own body that would be crucified and raised up in three days. What, what Stephen has essentially been saying that is with the coming of Jesus is the end of the preeminence of the temple order. The temple order was everything back then. How you worked in the temple, how you went to temple, what you did in the temple, that was everything back then. And he's saying, with the, with the coming of Jesus, that is now changing. Remember back in Matthew's gospel, Jesus himself, himself even said, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. That, that had to have blown religious people's mind. That, I mean, that's like, that's like someone today saying, I can't even think about what that would be. It's like, it's like you, want an elect, you want to get an electric car? There's something even better than the Tesla coming. You know, people are like, what, really? Really? Tell me now. I want to know. What is it? Oh, yeah, it's going to be way better. It's going to go a lot further, a lot cheaper at everything. You're just going to go, I want to know. So this is probably what was happening um, back then. He was just blowing them away. So you see, in the past, people came to the temple to meet God, but now they're such a come to Jesus in order to meet God. And really, to take this even further, after Jesus ascended into heaven and sent his spirit, remember Paul went on to say this in 1 Corinthians, he says, do you not know that you are God's temple? This really had to blow people away. Remember, the temple was everything back then. Everything revolved around the temple. Commerce, everything. And now he's saying there's something greater than the temple, and then you are God's temple, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Are you seeing how revolutionary this was? This was mind-blowing for them at that time. Now, the temple was still important, a gathering place. It was, we've seen that already. That Remember, as the believers came to know Christ, they still went to the temple, they started meeting in homes, too, and all that stuff. So the temple is still an important place, but it was no longer the only place where they can meet personally with God. This is what this, and so this is what the turmoil is causing here. Now, in accusing Stephen of teaching against the customs of Moses that he had handed down to them, uh, he was speaking of how the Jews in some matters, and remember, we looked at this in our study of Matthew, how the Jews were so hypervigilant about certain laws, remember? Wait, you're, you're, what's, what's going on? Your, your disciples, they're not washing their hands before they eat, or they're doing this on the Sabbath. Remember, they were just so hypervigilant about this. So when Stephen, when he's exalting Jesus, what he's doing is exalting this teacher that they did not like how he went about observing the law because it wasn't right, according to them. It just was not right. But we saw later that, we saw later that Jesus, he, said, he even said, remember, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill it, Okay. All that the law required and in order to be seen as righteous before God, all these things that were needed to do, God, that to be seen righteous by God was fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Side note here, do you ever feel like you have to earn God's favor? 
Don't raise your hand, could be should, because I do every once in a while. And I wouldn't say that. I don't say, oh, God, I need to do this to earn your favor. But I feel guilty if I don't do something I know I should do, or if I feel guilty doing something, I, oh, I shouldn't have done that. What that is, is wanting to earn, earn favor. And what we're seeing here is what the whole idea of Jesus, is com Jesus coming is, he abolished all that. Did you know that Jesus has done everything, everything, did I say everything? Everything that you and I need to do in order to have seen absolutely righteous before the Heavenly Father. He's done it all. It's done. Now, that doesn't mean we sit back and don't do anything and we just go, I'm going to live my life however I want to live it. Actually, that inspires us, doesn't it? I don't know about you, that inspires me to want to live a holy and righteous lifestyle knowing that I'm forgiven. Think of the mistakes you've made. Think of the, the, the things that you've done that you know are dishonoring God. Think of the things right even right now you're struggling with that dishonor God, and you know it. It has zero impact on his view of you. Did you know that? Zero. If, if you are truly a follower of his who has wholeheartedly surrendered your life to Christ. That's good news, people. That is such good news. But these guys weren't happy about that news. They did not like this at all. So there's these, so there's these, these things that they're, these are the things that they're accusing of Stephen of, okay? Now, these were serious accusations, like I could, like I said. And you would think, though, now, he knows that, he knows that the penalty is death. He knows it. So you would think... He'd be going, oh, okay, okay, what do I say? What do I say here? Okay, let me think about what have I learned before? What, how do I say that? Okay, the first law is this. Okay, first, no, the first, I, love, I love what happens here. We see, we see him that instead of shrinking back in any fear, look at how he responds. It says that they looked intently at him and they noticed, that his, they noticed his face. And his face looked like an angel. Now, what the heck does that mean? I think what that really means is that his face appeared calm, it was peaceful, it was confident, totally composed, probably shining in some way. Remember Moses after he had seen God? So all that was happening. Uh, so what this really denotes is his sincere and, he, and his fierce confidence. He was completely confident in God. And I don't think it was because he said, okay, I've written everything down. This is going to be great. As soon as they hear it, they have to respond. No. He just was confident that no matter what, God was in control here. And it's, my turn to, and it's my time to step up. It's time to step up. Okay? Now, let's look at what he said, what, what happens. Now we're starting in chapter 7. The high priest asked Stephen, are these things so? Basically, is this true, buddy? Is all that they're saying about all these accusations you made, which are ridiculously serious, is this true? Now, in response to this question, Stephen actually goes into what is the longest speech recorded in the book of Acts. It is long, okay? And what he essentially does is he gives us this historical overview of the most familiar events and names in the Old Testament uh, so as to, to show that his teaching on the temple wasn't inconsistent at all with what God's word. Actually, the things that he had been saying actually honor God's word. 
What he's going to do here, he's going to argue from the perspective of Israel's history for what worshiping God actually is supposed to look like according to how it's instructed in the Bible. Now, we don't have time, and you're probably going, Phew. we don't have time to look, at, we don't have time to go word for word over this speech because it goes, it goes all the way till the end of uh, chapter 7 here, which ends with verse 60, believe it or not. So uh, what I'm going to do is, what I want to do is I want to give us just a, a highlight the key points for us today that I'm hoping we'll see how this, what this has to do with us sharing our faith and how it encourages us and spurs us on to be able to share our faith, okay? And he begins with the whole issue of dealing with this issue of the temple. Because you remember the Jews believed that the temple was the holy place where God resided. This is where he lived. That's what they believed. On earth, this was his earthly dwelling, okay? And if you want to meet with God, this is where you got to go to meet with him, okay? So Stephen's going to go through four major periods of Israel's history. And each one of them, he proves that God's presence was never limited to a particular place. He's going to show them that this is not, you guys are getting it absolutely wrong here. And he begins with Abraham. So let's look at, look at verse 2 and 3 only on, on, on the Abraham piece. He's, and Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And said to him, go from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. So God appears to Abraham and promises him that he will be the father of many nations. But here's the hitch. You're going to have to leave what's familiar, okay? You're going to have to leave your homeland, and here's what you're going to have to do. You've got to become a foreigner. Basically, you need to be essentially a resident alien. This made me think about all the issues that we're dealing with with this right now, Right? especially in California and Texas and Arizona with the whole immigrant, immigrant crisis. Just think about how that feel, must feel. I can't imagine to be an alien in a foreign country. So this is what, this is what he's asking him to do, okay? And other side, he, he won't even see the establishment of these nations in his lifetime. Just go, go do it. Okay, that's wild, Actually, it's going to be hundreds of years before God's promise will be fulfilled. And during that time, Abraham's descendants will continue to be resident aliens, including being enslaved for 400 years in Egypt. That the reality is that from the moment that God made his promise to Abraham, although without a place of their own to worship God, they were his covenant people. Number three on your notes there, what Stephen is saying is that worshiping God and experiencing his work and power is not, isn't limited to a specific time or place. And I think we know that. That makes sense. And you're going to notice a kind of a repetition and a kind of a no duh kind of in some of these things, these points. To us, at least it seems that way. Okay. Throughout this period in Israel's history, all these hundreds of years, even in slavery, God was always working and he was always fully available to be worshiped. God didn't just say, Abraham, go and uh, I'll be with you later and I'll be with your people later in a thousand years. He didn't say that. He said, go. 
I'll take care of things, you just go. And so he was with them. So God was with, the, with them as they traveled, as they, as they moved around. So next thing he goes, is he goes, he starts talking about Joseph. Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, those are his brothers, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. What he's saying here, as with Joseph's jealous brothers, how they showed opposition to God's ways by selling him into slavery, yet we saw later that their lives were actually saved by Joseph. In the same way, these religious leaders are showing opposition to God, even though he has provided evidence of the fulfillment of his promises in the resurrection of Jesus. Here's the point. The point is that God was present in Egypt with Joseph, working to fill his plan in what seemed to be this absolute godless land. I'm sure when Joseph got to, by the way, if you've never watched it before, there is a movie on, the move, on, the, on Joseph. I, can't, I think it was put out by Warner or something like, it's probably one of the best Bible movies that's, not, that's put out by a secular company I've, I've ever seen. It is really, really good. Who's the guy, the actor that plays Gandhi? Um, ben Kingsley actually plays Potiphar in it. Look it up. Check it. I mean, it really is. I'm moved to tears every time I watch it. Haven't watched it since my VH machine, uh, Jeff's machine blew up, but... Um, it's fantastic. I would encourage you to go, go look it up. But that God was always working in this time when, I'm sure when Joseph showed up in Egypt, it wasn't like all of a sudden people went, ooh, what's this? And they all started experiencing God. It was still a godless nation that he was in, but God was constantly working in Joseph through his life in Egypt, just like he is doing, was doing now and doing at their time now. You see, number four, no matter where we are and what situation we find ourselves in, we can be confident that God is present and at work. No matter what, no matter where, no matter how dismal the situation might seem, no matter how far God might seem. Because most of us won't go places that are far, that we seem God is far. I remember when um, we were missionaries in the Dominican, we would go over to Haiti every once in a while. And we did this one trip into Haiti and we went in there and you, I mean, you could just feel the oppression. I mean, it, just, I mean, it literally sat on you. You can feel it. And then one night we were in this village that had no running water, no electricity. And, and we, as soon as we went to bed at night at about 10 o'clock, um, the traveling voodoo dude was in town. And he brings all his people. So from 10 o'clock till about 4 in the morning, we heard the voodoo drums beating. Just boom, 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 boom. You want to add to the oppression that you're feeling and feeling like, is God even here? <laughs> Where? I just remember going, this is a freaky feeling, hearing these drums going and knowing that there's voodoo stuff going on just down the street. But God, I know that God was still with us there. And we were, in a, we were staying in a church hut that was built by a guy that had a phenomenal ministry in that little village. We know God was working. We need to remember that, especially when he is feeling, feeling far away. Remember at the end of the Great Commission in Matthew where Jesus instructs his disciple and says, how, here's how I want you to go to make disciples. He tells them that I will always be with you for how long? Till the, till the end. I'm with you. Always, I'm always with you to the end. 
Okay, next thing. Now Stephen goes, this is a long one. Stephen goes on a talk at length about Moses. Really, it goes from like verses 17 to 43. Let's read that. I'm kidding. What... <clears throat> What he talks about here is how Moses, we know the story, how he was born in Egypt and raised in Pharaoh's palace and and how he had to, uh, contrary to the Charlton Heston version, he had to flee into the wilderness after trying to save his Hebrew brothers were in slavery. Remember, he had he had killed an Egyptian one time, you know, because he was because he was uh, messing with one of the slaves. All, All this stuff was happening. And we see that goes on. He says, he says that God appeared to him, even though when he flee, fleed, after 40 years, he, fee, he appeared to him in a burning bush. Look at verses 30. He says, now when 40 years had passed, could you imagine waiting 40 years for God? We feel like for God to do something that we feel like what's going on. 40 years he waited. And an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. There came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and have come down to deliver them. And now... Come, I will send you to Egypt. And notice how God tells him to, that he's standing on holy ground. You ever thought about that before? What, that, what that's like? What it, what it would mean to be standing on holy ground? What Stephen is doing here by saying this is he's pointing out has, there is holy ground outside of a typical place that we think is holy. A tabernacle, a temple, of this place, of that place, that's where, that's, where the holy, that's where the holy ground is. The truth is wherever God chooses to reveal himself is holy. Wherever God is, is holy. And the same God who met Moses in the wilderness was again present in, G- in Egypt. Remember, he says, I've seen the oppression of my people. I see it. I see what's going on. I'm there. I'm working. Don't worry. I see it. And he goes on to say that even though the people rejected Moses, he, led, he still led them out of Egypt and through the Red Sea, yet they ultimately wandered in the desert, in the wilderness, due to the rejection of God's ways, just as the religious leaders are doing by rejecting what Jesus, who Jesus was. You see how he's weaving all this in there? And you see how the implication is slowly turning? Slowly turning. The point here is number five on your mo- as you're out in your notes. As with Moses, God still reveals himself to his people anywhere and everywhere. It's our responsibility to be available to hear and obey what he is revealing to us. He's always doing that. He's always revealing himself. But you say, I don't hear him. <laughs> I'm not seeing it. I, I, I just don't see it. I don't hear him. I don't sense him. I don't feel him. Where this, but this is why it's so important. This is why it's so vital that we meet with him and not just sit back and wait, that we meet with him in his word and in prayer and with other believers. We can't do this alone. We're not meant to just say, okay, I prayed a prayer. I've been in church a long time. I should be growing in my faith. Okay, grow, 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 grow. It just doesn't work that way. We need to be willing to, we need to be in a place where we're available. And being available is just like a husband is available to his wife, just the friends are available to one another. That means we're present. We're all there. 
We're coming before them saying, I'm here. I want to know you more. I want to figure you out. I care about you. And we need to take those actions, not out of guilt. I got to do my quiet time. No, it's because I, there's no way that I'm going to get the revelation from God unless I'm meeting with him. I need to spend that time. Now, God can just do whatever he wants. And a lot of times he does that. Sometimes we neglect God over and over and over again. And it's kind of like, I like the analogy, kind of lets the rope, let, let, lets the rope out, let the rope out. And some of you experienced this before, right? <laughs> Don't let it get to that. I remember my wife was just praying that just the other night. We pray every night before we go to bed. And we're, lately our prayers have been centering a lot around our youngest son who's in prison right now. And it's really been difficult. It's really been difficult. And, uh, and, uh, and he doesn't want anything to do with God. And I think one of our prayers is that. We want God to meet him. We want, actually, God gave me a word the other day to pray. I was praying for him on my walk. And God said, pray that your son will flourish in jail. Okay. <laughs> well, I'll do that. <laughs> yeah. But. So I'm, so I'm, we're praying though, that it won't get to the point and it, but we're praying that God, if it needs to be the, poof, do it, whatever it takes. Cause God is, God is loving and he's caring and he will only let you stay rebellious or lukewarm if you want to call it for so long. Cause he loves you so much and he really wants, he'll get your attention one way or the other. So go to him, go to him, but let other people help you. Okay. All right, this brings us to the last one where he talks about David and Solomon, okay, where he says it was David's idea to build the temple, but it was Solomon who actually built the temple. Look what he says uh, in verse uh, 48 and 50, because um, even though Solomon built the temple, look what he says. Yet the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did, my, did not my hand make all things? It just does seem kind of crazy. Huh? I'm going to build God a house. <laughs> really? He's saying, really? Okay, you want a temple? That's great. You want a meeting place? That's great. But I'm not... That, it's not going to contain me, okay? It's just not. Do you see this thread that's going through everything that Stephen is doing here that talks about the temple? It's that God of Israel is not restricted to one place. Number six on your notes. He is self-sufficient and never dependent on humans, even if they build him a temple. If he has any home here on earth, it's with his people that he lives, are you getting it? <laughs> Are you getting this theme that he is just throwing at them like crazy here? Later on in Acts, the apostle Paul, after his conversion, will say this. Listen to this. He says, and the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So Stephen here, he's effectively defended the charges against him and, and that he has spoken blasphemy against God and, and of his holy place. And in doing so, what he's actually done is he has identified the true blasphemers. Who are the true blasphemers? It's these religious leaders. They are the ones, the ones that are accusing him of blasphemy. 
Now remember there also the accusation that he was altering the laws and the laws and customs handed down by Moses. But in each of these periods, he has gone through, he has shown how the problem was not the law. The problem was the Jewish Jewish people's lack of obedience to the law. Now look at how he finishes off. Look how he concludes his thing here. He says, you, and he says some really nice words to them. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels did not keep it. So the roles have reversed, haven't they? (laughs) They've completely reversed here from accusing Stephen of breaking the law and blaspheming to them breaking the law and being the blasphemers and the covenant and breaking the covenant that God made with Abraham by hardening their hearts and not listening to the leading of the Holy Spirit by the killing of the Messiah. He's saying, it's not me. (laughs) It's not me or Jesus who's disregarded the law, but you and your father's. You guys have disregarded the law. Well, you can imagine how this all went over, right? This probably went really great. Good thing is, I don't have to tell you, we know what happened, right? We know what happened to Steve. They made him a banquet. No, that's not it at all. No, listen, look at, look at this, uh, the last section of this, of this passage. Verse 54 says, And when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of their city and stoned him. The The witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Man. So they drive Stephen out of the city and they stone him. And notice how he dies. Stephen dies with no resentment at all for his accusers. Just this this sweet request to God that he would not hold this against them. Wow. Sound like someone else who died unjustly, right? He dies just like Jesus died with love and forgiveness in his heart for those who persecute him. You know, in speaking of uh, Stephen's death, the great, the great p- preacher, a descendant of Wendy Kong, Charles Haddon Spurgeon says this. He said, we are to carry in our hearts no remembrance of ills, but to live every day freely forgiving as we are every day freely forgiven. But as we get nearer to heaven, there must be a growing love to those who hate us. For so shall we prove that we have been made ready for the skies. is that amazing? Your mom is hanging out with this guy right now. Her mom just passed. That's so, that's exciting. All right, what Stephen has demonstrated in his speech, like we've talked about, God is not bound to a place. He is not bound to traditions. God is bound to his people wherever they are, wherever we are. 
And here's the message for us today. Last thing on your notes. The message for us today is in order to be able to rightly, boldly, appropriately, and courageously defend our faith, we need to come to understand the significance and implication of God's ever presence with us. Now, I know for most of us, we go, okay, I know God's with me, but do we really understand the implications of that? Do we really understand the significance of God being with us all the time? This is the season when we, where we actually proclaim that, right? Emmanuel, God with us. What a great time to be going through this because this is exactly what we need to have in our minds. There are many ways that God's ever presence with us impacts our lives, especially when it comes to defending our faith. But I believe really one of the best and clearest ways is found in the book of Isaiah, believe it or not. When speaking to the nation of Israel in order to assure them um, that he was going to be with them during a very, very challenging time, through the prophet Isaiah, God says this to them, for I have chosen you and, you will, and, I, and will not throw you away. Don't be afraid, for I am with you. Don't be discouraged, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will hold you up with my victorious right hand. And we, my friends, have been grafted into the nation of Israel. This promise is for us as well. Remember Peter in his second letter tells us that as followers of Jesus, that we are chosen, we're a chosen race, remember? A royal priesthood, a, to a, a holy nation. We belong to God for the purpose of proclaiming his excellencies. In 2.9, 2 Peter 2.9 says that we have, we have been chosen to, to proclaim his excellence. That's why he chose us. He loves us and he wants us to proclaim his excellencies. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that you have been specifically and especially chosen by God? Chosen to be his personal possession. And that he will never discard you. And he will provide you with the strength and the support necessary to be able to defend and give a defense for the gospel. He will. He's with us. He will give that to us. Now, that doesn't mean that we're all going to walk in all cocky and, yeah, I got God with me. Listen up. That's not it at all. It's this humble dependence on the fact that I know that God is with me. Not only that, he chose me. He put me up on the mantle and wants to use me. Flawed, messed up, scared, depressed, all of that. He wants to use me. Despite our circumstances, despite the difficulties we're going through, he wants to use us. The truth is because all this is true, we have no need, we don't need to fear people's rejection, being judged, or having to measure up to anyone's standard when it comes to sharing our faith. We're free to defend our faith because God is always with us and always for us. Remember as the Apostle Paul said, if God is for us, what? Who can be against us? But they might say, stop talking to me. Or they might say, shut up, that's stupid. Or they might say, I don't want to talk to you again. They might, right? But if God is for us, who can really be against us? If my family turns their back on me because of my faith, who can really be against me that really matters the most? The problem is so many of us have grown up just 
desperate for the approval of other people. Desperate for it. And that's what we need to allow God to break through and to change in us. I hope this encouraged you this morning. I hope this, how Stephen's example encourages you and, and, and emboldens you to give you the, the courage and motivation to rightly and to appropriately defend your faith when he gives those opportunities. And, help, and I hope it encourages you to walk in courage and the strength and security that is found in this sufficient, loving, perfect, ever present Father God. Now, I know we've gone long, but I've decided I still want to have some questions, okay? Let me ask you this. First question. Why don't you throw that up there? Take a minute. What are some ways that being aware of God's ever presence with you might encourage and embolden you to defend your faith? Think about that. What are some ways that being aware, remember, thinking about it, you're you're marinating that he's with me, God is with me, all these things that we've been talking about, how might that encourage you? Or how could that embolden us to defend our faith? Any just random thoughts? a great one yeah exactly once again it's that whole personal what god yeah i know god is here because he's i know god because he's with me and here's why i know yeah that's a great one yeah what else anything else you can think of i'm just marinating in that that ever present can that make us more bold yeah lisa yes That is so good. I love that. It, you hear what she said about connect? Because really, if we're looking at witnessing to people as our obligation, that's going to be a very difficult spirit-filled conversation, right? But we know that God can give us a love for the people. Actually, you know what? Don't share the love of Christ with people you don't love. I just, that just came to my head. <laughs> because what you need to do is they're going to know. They're going to know. Share Ask first, ask first for God to give you a love for the people that you are sharing. Think about Jesus' motive for sharing. It was purely 100% out of love. If yours is about disseminating information and information only, you got it wrong. Okay? All right. Why do we, second question, why do we struggle to believe these things? Why do we struggle to believe the things like, you know, we can love these people or that God is with us or that, you know, God has done all these things. Why do we struggle to believe that this ever, ever presence of God can really embolden us and really encourage us to share our faith? Why? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so good, yeah, yeah. It's easy to let fear um, drive your actions. Yeah. Being scared of what what somebody might think of you. Yeah, yeah, good, good, definitely. Anything else, yeah, these are good. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I think we're better versed and practiced at doing things our way than doing things out of faith. I don't remember that, that. If this was the faith muscle and this was the doing things my own way, this one's probably, you know, and this, and this one's pretty, you know. I don't know if that's a word for muscle or not. Is that Okay, good, okay. Um, last, just last thing, real quick. What can we do to overcome our struggles? What can we do to overcome our struggles to just recognize and remember that God is present with us always and allowing that to embolden us and give us courage to share our faith? What are some things we can do? As you mentioned earlier, you know, be in the word more, be around the, you know, our church, our fellow believers yeah. um, more often. Yeah. 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 Step Good. Up yeah. Step up and just do it. Isn't that so true? Yeah, that's so true. It's like, it's like the Indiana Jones thing, you know, just step out, you know, and just, you know, just God, God's there. I don't see it, but I'm going to go. Yeah. Yeah. Out of the mouths of young babe Christians, right? Awesome. It's awesome. Well, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Let's, let's, um, we're going to move into a time of communion now. And I just want to encourage you to be, to be thinking about this and be thinking about uh, God's presence. And by the way, share, when I say don't share Christ with people that you don't love, obviously, a little bit hyperbole there. Ask God to help you to love people. That's where it, that's where it comes down. Let that be... Something encourages you to love, okay? Father God, thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness, God. And now as we move into a time, Father, where we celebrate and we remember the body of Jesus that was given for us and the blood that was shed, we're grateful, so grateful, God, and how really that speaks to what we've just been talking about, that now you are present everywhere, anywhere, with us, giving us courage, giving us strength, being that, <laughs> that invisible blanket, if you were, because of Jesus. Because on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he said, this is my bread. This represents my body. Take it, eat it. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup and he said, this is, resembles the blood of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. And we do that, Jesus. We remember you during this time. And we take some moment here to reflect on all the implications here of what you've done to allow us to be present with God all 